for uh, those of you that, that stepped out today. I believe um, it should be more normative that God speaks through us, uh, not only in a worship setting like this, but in a Sunday school class, in the foyer back here, in our daily lives. If each of us, if each of us go through one entire week, seven days, and not one time in that week did the Holy Spirit minister to someone else through us, we weren't paying attention. In fact, I would even say if we go through an entire day, because that's how badly he wants to touch people's lives. And we have that power inside of us. Now, the word that Heather gave was a corrective word, okay? And so sometimes when we hear corrective words like that, we have a sense of, oh man, I'm, yeah, I focus way too much on me, and woe is me, shame on me, shame, 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 condemnation, guilt. That should never be. Because it has nothing to do with my salvation because my salvation, as we've learned from Hebrews, is dependent only upon what Jesus has done for me. And so I can throw up both of my hands when Pastor John says, hey, throw up your hands and surrender and say, God, you're right. I've been focusing way too much on me. My salvation isn't in question. It's just the practicality of living my life and the fact that God would take time to come today and say, hey, you have been focusing way too much on you and not enough on my kingdom and my work. You're right, and the, the Hebrews has taught us that God loves us because he took time to discipline us. And grace brought that out today. God disciplines those he loves. So if God, if again, you go through an entire week and you feel like God has not corrected you one time, you should really begin to wonder if God loves you because he disciplines those he loves. And our salvation doesn't depend on how well I've done, it depends on Jesus. So I don't have to feel ashamed or condemned when he corrects me, I just need to agree with him. And when we humble ourselves and agree with God, James says you get more grace. And that grace helps you to do what he's asking you to do. But for those that don't wanna say, hey, no, I'm not gonna be corrected, I didn't do anything wrong, God, you're wrong or that person was wrong. Heather, you're wrong, that's not what God's saying. I don't wanna correct myself, I don't wanna humble myself, I don't wanna be wrong, you don't get grace. Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so that's why I love watching us exercise faith and uh, grow in that way, and that's what the book of Hebrews has been trying to teach us, that this letter that was written to the Hebrew believers. Remember, all throughout the book of Hebrews as we've been talking, this letter was written to them to encourage them because they turned their back on the old covenant, the Jewish way, and turned to faith in Christ, but it was difficult, it was hard. No one said that serving God was gonna be easy and that all of a sudden everything would just just fall into place. There's gonna be difficulties, there's gonna be hardships, but don't turn back. When you get tired, when you get frustrated, you just keep pressing on on and we get the grace to press on from the cross we get it from God we run to him we go to him we admit that we've fallen short and he gives us more grace to do these things the fact that this superior covenant the entire book of Hebrews all 23 sermons now that we've gone through through the book of Hebrews has reminded us that the new covenant is far superior to the old covenant so our response should be far superior than the old covenant response 
response. Too many of us think that in the new covenant or in the old covenant, it was harder to live out faith or it was harder to keep the law. And now in the new covenant, it's just easy, you know? I mean, I don't have to worry about how I live because God's grace just covers me. I don't have to worry about what I do. No, we do. We have to pay attention to how we live because you and I have the spirit of God inside of us. So the old covenant, it was impossible for them to live up to the standard. It was impossible for them to do what was right. But it is possible for us to live up to that standard because we have the spirit of God inside of us. He's a constant reminder to us. Here's how you should treat that person. Here's how you should talk. Here's the entertainment choice you should choose. Not so that we have a list of stuff we should do, but so that we can live out the great salvation God has given to us. Don't take it for granted. Don't miss the grace of God we've been warned. All throughout Hebrews, we've been told that there's this superior covenant calls for a superior response, that God has given us everything that we need, and we've been warned over six times to pay attention. Pay attention. Don't live just like it doesn't matter how I live. I can just do whatever and hope it all works out. If we choose that path, we'll miss it. When God speaks, we'll miss it. And we'll go through a week and we won't hear God speak. And if we live life that way long enough, we'll miss even the obvious things. And we'll end up trampling on the very blood that he gave for us. That's the book of Hebrews in a nutshell. Now, we've got two weeks left in the book of Hebrews. And I looked, we started last July. So oddly, we're going to finish next week in July. So it uh, took us a year to get here, but we made it through uh, the book of Hebrews. Now, this is a letter, and so at the end of this letter, what the writer's doing, just like you and I, whenever you know, we come to the end of something, we, we're like, oh, I forgot this, or oh, I wanna remind you of what, and so he's recapping. He's like coming to the end, and he's saying, okay, here's, here's everything I said in a nutshell, and we're like, well, why didn't you just say that? Um, <laughs> because he laid a foundation so that he could recap it, and so he's given us a lot of points, and today we're gonna do 17 verses, I hope. Let's all pray in just a second that God gives me grace to cover 17 verses in a short amount of time. And here's the thing. I, I have, I'm going to be sharing later in July a word that I felt like God gave me for the vision of our church and for us as, as to how we're supposed to be doing things. And even directly to me about giving less information so that we can live up to what we've attained. Uh, and so in a, in a few minutes, I'm going to give you seven points. And uh, I wrestled with it this week because in my mind, I'm like, Lord, you told me to give less information. How could I possibly give seven points? You need to write down all seven. And when we come to the end, I'm gonna put a handle on it that I believe is gonna help us to carry those seven things because there's really one point today. The, the sermon title is called Be Offensive. And some of you are like, yes, I got that down. <laughs> That's not what I mean. We're gonna talk about seven different people that we need to be offensive towards. Now, I don't mean offensive like to offend them or be rude or you know just be hard with them, not that kind of offensive. When you think of offense and defense in a sporting term, 
Okay, defense, you're, you're, you're playing back. You don't know what's about to happen. And too many of us live our Christian lives that way. We, we're on the defense against, you know, what's the devil gonna throw at me today? Or, you know, what's gonna come? Or uh, in our, our marriages, we play defense. In our relationships with each other, we play defense. But the, the scripture today is gonna call us to be offensive, proactive, so into and so that's what we're gonna look at, not to be offensive in the terms of being rude, but being offensive in the terms of being proactive in these relationships. And so the writer of Hebrews, as he's summing up this letter, gives us seven different relationships that we need to work on. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're gonna to go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. We're coming to the end. And uh, I was only gonna try to cover 14 verses, but uh, I really tried to, like I said, cut it short, but I felt like we had to go all 17. And so here we go. Verse one, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. Give honor to marriage. Remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the example of their faith. Verse eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Your strength comes from God's grace, not from rules about food, which don't help those who follow them. We have an altar from which the priests in the tabernacle have no right to eat. Under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin, and the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. So also, Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. So let us go to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace he bore, for this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. Those verses, we're not gonna spend a lot of time, 10 to 14, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on those today. It's almost like he regresses back into this comparing the old covenant and the new covenant. And so let me just say that in the old covenant, outside the camp was a disgraceful thing. You didn't go outside the camp. But Moses, oddly, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, outside the camp. So that if you wanted to go meet with God, you went to him outside the camp. Meaning, you didn't just stumble into the presence of God. You chose to go outside. In a dis it's a disgraceful thing to go out there. And so, you don't want to go outside the camp because there's safety in the camp. There's ritual in the camp. You don't have to worry about contaminating yourself in the camp. All the bad stuff was outside the camp. And Jesus bore that disgrace outside the camp. That's how he died. And so he's calling us to go outside, outside the religion, outside the safety, outside the, the, the and bearing the same disgrace that Jesus bore. And so he's kind of comparing all those things. And like I said, we don't have time to go into that uh, if I can possibly give you the things I want to give you. Verse 15, therefore, 
let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. Give them reasons to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. And so, Father, help us today to hear and understand your word and Holy Spirit. Help us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so he's going to give us seven groups of people that we need to be diligent to be proactive, to be offensive towards, in that sense, uh, as we work out our salvation. Because we cannot say that we love God if we do not love people around us. Okay, our, the depth of our relationship with God, we learned this last time, the depth of our relationship with God is shown in the strength of our relationships on earth. And even to the point of loving our enemies and doing good to those who hate us and blessing those who curse us, that's the power of the gospel. And all of these are gonna begin with the letter S. Okay, I'm making it so easy for you. I'm gonna give you seven, and I want you to at least write down the seven groups of people. If nothing else you write down, at least write down the seven. The first one, sisters and brothers. Yes, I had to cheat and put sisters first so that it started with S. Keep on loving each other as sisters and brothers, brothers and sisters. Now, it's interesting because that word love here is not the Greek word agape that we've talked about. Remember, agape love is the kind of love that God gives us and we act in love towards others. So even if I don't feel like I like you or love you or whatever, I still act in a way that God would act towards you. I still love you with the love he provides. But this word is not agape. Now, agape is important, but this is the word phileo. And the word phileo is the word for brotherly love or an affectionate type of love. So what he's saying is keep on having affection for one another as brothers and sisters. Now, in order to have affection for one another's brothers and sisters, that's going to require effort on our part because our emotions will not always lead us to a point where we have affection for one another. Sometimes you have to lead your emotions. Sometimes you have to agape someone or love them in a way that God tells you to so that your emotions catch up. So what he's saying is, don't be satisfied to say, well, you know, I love you, but I really don't like you. He's saying, cultivate the kind of affection for one another, which means you're gonna have to take thoughts captive, which means you're gonna have to do something towards someone, maybe that, that, that you don't wanna do because your emotions are leading you to do something else. We've got to cultivate our emotions. In the book of Romans, Paul says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tight to what is good. In other words, if all you do <clears throat> is rehearse the mistakes that people have made, if all you do is rehearse the, the flaws in people's character, you are not going to have affection for them. You've got to focus on what God sees when he looks at them. You've got to focus on believing the best in them and trying to draw out the best in them. You don't have to ignore their flaws or their sin, but you've got to earn the right through diligently pouring love into them, you've got to earn the right to bring correction. See, we look at Matthew chapter 18 and we just think that gives us the right to go to someone and say, hey, you're wrong here and I just want to tell you about it. 
the writer of Hebrews starts with, you need to cultivate a genuine affection for one another. And it's gonna take effort on our parts because here's the thing, as human beings, I'm gonna shock you right now. Not really any of us are really all that lovable. I mean, maybe on our good day, but we all have bad days. And so we all have days where we're just not real lovable or we all have parts of our character that just aren't that lovable. And so in order for you and I to really have a genuine affection for one another, we have got to cultivate it. And it doesn't start with you, it starts with me. If I wait for it to start with you, it's not gonna start. I've gotta take responsibility to cultivate affection for you. And you've gotta take the responsibility to cultivate affection for me. We don't put it on the other person. In Colossians chapter three, the writer here says, since God has chosen you to be his holy people that he loves, you should clothe yourself with this. Look, tender-hearted mercy. That means giving people the benefit of the doubt. It means giving them a clean slate. Mercy, the mercy of God is new every morning. In other words, when you wake up in the morning, you can cry out for the mercy of God and he'll give you a brand new slate to start with. We don't do the same for one another. We have a tendency to judge one another based on how I view you from a distance. You know, I, I observe the way you are and I've already figured out in my brain the type of person you are and so I don't wanna get too close to you. That's not tender-hearted mercy. Or we go by what other people have said. Yeah, I've had some run-ins with that person. Let me tell you about them. That's not tender-hearted mercy. That's not kindness or humility or gentleness or patience. That's not making allowance for each other's faults. That's not forgiving those who offend us. Look at what Paul is saying. This is how you cultivate affection for one another. It's a choice, and that's what we've gotta do. We've gotta be offensive with this. It's not just gonna happen by accident. It's not gonna happen because you show up at church on Sunday. You're not gonna cultivate affection for each other just by showing up in a building. You're not even gonna get it from coming forward to an altar and receiving a download from heaven. You can get agape love from God, but the affection is what you do with agape. That makes sense? Okay, number two. We've gotta be offensive toward, I hope no one tunes in in the middle of this because go back to the beginning and understand what I mean by offensive, okay? Because it doesn't sound right, but I'm gonna keep saying it over and over. Be offensive towards strangers. This is a culture where they were told to show hospitality to one another. It was expected. It was almost required. In fact, if your enemy came to you at night because of the dangers of being out in the, the wilderness at, at dark, you invited your enemy into your home and you fed them and you clothed them and then in the morning you sent them on your way uh, and then you were enemies again. But while they were in your home, you protected them. That just is so, for, I mean it's like the rules of engagement for war, as if there are, are, are rules for war. But we all know the story of, the, of Silent Night and during the World War when the, the, the enemies were fighting each other on uh, Christmas Day and they paused from fighting and sang together Silent Night and they actually came together and they celebrated for a minute and then they just went back and started shooting each other again. Because there was a time when hospitality was a given because the value that was placed on human beings. Even in war, they valued the human life. We don't really value human life today. And so please don't misunderstand this when it says to offer hospitality to strangers. What he, he's not saying you should just should have people in your home. Okay, that's not biblical hospitality alone. 
Now, is it okay to have people in your home? Absolutely, you should. We all should do that. But you can have people in your home and not be hospitable. Because hospitality is about recognizing the value on someone and meeting a need in their life. So in our culture, it would actually be harder for us to just stop in the middle of our day and show someone value by looking them in the eye, by listening to what they're saying, not interrupting them, by taking a moment and just recognizing they're not my waitress, they're not my waiter, they're not just a cashier, they're a human being with value and I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna pause and I'm gonna show you attention. Nothing worse than talking on your cell phone when the cashier is, is taking your stuff and then you, you know, you're, you put the phone down. Show them some value. Interact with them. Please understand, I'm way just as guilty as any of us in this room. But we've got to understand, biblical hospitality is not just about having people over for dinner. Because you can have someone over for dinner and not value them outside of that moment. We've got to value people and not devalue them in their lives. We value them because of the value God places on them. God so loved the world that he gave his best, his only son. And while we were his enemies, he demonstrated his love by sending his son to die for us. And so the value of human life, you know, it's crazy because as Christians, we get on our little soapbox, we've got to stop abortion, but here's the thing, we don't value human life outside the womb. And so as believers, we're sabotaging ourselves. I mean, we can't expect the world to value life in the womb if we as believers aren't showing them and modeling them value for life outside the womb. So let's value people. That's what God is saying, you value people. Is abortion wrong? Yes, it's taking human life. But so is just ignoring someone that's standing in front of me that has the same value as that child in the womb. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to us, showing value to that individual. So don't just be hospitable to strangers, although that's part of it. Be hospitable to all people, but we're supposed to love people, so yeah, yeah, there we go. Okay, number three. Be offensive toward the suffering, toward, as he specifically says, those in prison and those who are being mistreated as if you felt your, their pain in your body. Here's the thing, we've gotta to get to a place where we can put ourselves in the shoes of someone else. Now, here's how we do it. We, we look at someone and, and how they're responding to a situation, and we instantly go into, well, you know, I would handle that better than them mode. You know, that's not a big deal. You think that's suffering? Let me show you what suffering is. And so we start comparing or we start judging and thinking, well, you know, they just need to handle that better. Well, they, they're not handling it better and that's the point. For them, they're feeling something that we have got to try to somehow wrap our brains around that they're not wired like us. And so just because they're dealing with something different than us doesn't make us right and them wrong. We've got to remember people that are suffering. We've got to remember, you know, I love that we remember the persecuted church around the world, and we should. The Bible calls us to do that. But there are, there are a lot of religious people that subscribe to the Voice of the Martyrs magazine, but they really don't, they don't love their brothers and sisters in Christ that are right there with them, but they love the nameless, faceless church around the world. Again, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the person beside you in the church pew that's not handling a situation as well as you would handle it. Put yourself in their shoes and feel for a moment what they're feeling. 
Now, you, we can't do that without being offensive, without being proactive. That's not just going to happen. What's going to happen is our natural reaction of, I could do that better. I mean, we all do that. We all think we could handle someone's life better than they're handling it. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to show compassion for them. Now, that doesn't mean we just let them, I mean, we show compassion to meet them where they are to bring them to a higher level. Because some of you are thinking, well, if we just keep enabling people to stay, we're not enabling anyone. We're enabling them to come to a higher level. But you can't get someone to a higher level if you're not willing to get in the mud with them. And we would rather stand from afar and point at people that are suffering and not just get down with them and pull them to a better place. True religion, James says, is to care for the orphan and the widow. The orphan and the widow in that day could not in any way take care of themselves. There was no government orphanage. There was no foster care system, okay? If you were an orphan, you didn't have a chance. If you were a, a widow, you, you couldn't work. You weren't educated. So you've got to understand, I'm not saying we shouldn't care for orphans and widows and we shouldn't do adoption and foster care and royal family kids. All that's great. But don't miss the higher purpose here. Care for people who cannot care for themselves, who cannot help themselves. Jesus constantly ministered to the outcast, the poor, the broken, the leper, the untouchables, the prostitute, the sinner. He went after specifically the people no one would go after, the, no, the one no one else would pay attention to. So for you and I, the person that we turn away and run when we see them coming is the very person God's calling us to minister to. The suffering. Be offensive toward the suffering. To the people in prison that are there because of their own dumb choices, yeah. Be proactive to remember them, to minister to them. That's the proof of the love of God in our lives and through our lives. The next one, number four. Be offensive towards your spouse. Now some of you, amen, I mean, you're really good at this. You're being offensive towards your spouse. But again, reminding you, that we're to be proactive in loving our spouse. I know that the Bible says God hates divorce. I know that God is never really in favor of divorce. Jesus even taught that Moses only offered the option of divorce ever because of the hardness of people's hearts. Now, we live in a broken world. We live in a place where people, uh, uh, where our hearts are hard. And even though God hates divorce, he does not hate people who are divorced. Okay? No matter what the reason, God doesn't hate them. In fact, this week at camp, I had the chance to meet with a, a person. Uh, he was one of our leaders that was there, and he told me the story about how him and his wife got divorced and uh, how their family was separated, and they both had to come to a place. They got reconciled and remarried three years later, but they both had to come to a place where they were, uh, where God dealt with them as individuals so they could come back together. And he said, and none of our children are really serving the Lord right now, but they let us bring our grandchildren to camp. That's why I come every year, because I bring my grandkids back, and I believe that God's gonna restore my family. I mean, what a picture of the grace of God. So, but here's the thing, again, our world does not have a divorce problem. We have a proactive honor marriage problem. Because some people in the church stay married 
but they do not honor marriage. They don't honor their spouse. I mean, they would never divorce because that's against what God is. Well, so is disrespecting your spouse. And so is not honoring and cherishing them proactively. Because the Bible teaches us that marriage is a covenant. And it's actually, it says right here, it's a great mystery. It's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. In other words, our marriages as believers are supposed to illustrate to the world the relationship that Christ has with us. Wow, that's a tall, tall order. And except for the grace of God, there's no way you and I are gonna be able to do that. And there's no way that you and I are gonna be able to do that defensively. If we're not proactively saying, God, help me to honor and cherish my spouse. Help me to show them the value and love that you have for them. Help me to honor them, respect them. The word submit comes into this. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter five, verse 21, it says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yield is what that word means to one another. It doesn't mean husbands, you should lord it over your wives. In fact, the scripture tells you to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church. Treat her with understanding. I mean, it's easy to mock our wives. It's easy to say, you know, pull out the big book with blank pages and say this is everything men understand about women and I get it it's a joke and it's funny but we treat them with understanding and don't let the subtleties of our culture erode the honor that we should have in fact men your prayers can be hindered if you do not treat your wife as you should if you do not love her as Christ loved the church it actually hinders our prayers that should get every one of us on our knees every morning saying, God, give me grace to treat her as I should. Amen. I know, wives, you didn't want to elbow your husbands because the Bible says to you that you should respect your husband. It doesn't say give him the respect he has earned or that you think he's worthy of. It's to respect him, period. In fact, in Peter, when Peter says to wives, if you treat your husbands the way that they should, even if they're an unbeliever, that character that you have and that you display in the home will actually win them over. Now, again, it's easy to preach this in like three minutes and tell you all this stuff. It is way harder to live it out, especially if you have an unbelieving spouse. But it's possible because the power of the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so we honor marriage. Let's not be the people that, you know, say to the world, you know, you need to honor marriage. Honoring marriage is not about taking a stand against homosexuality. Honoring marriage is not taking a stand against divorce. It's about making sure that we're treating and modeling for the world the type of honor and respect that should be in a marriage relationship. And so we have got to be offensive towards our spouses. Amen. Number five, look at us going right along. We're just flying through this now. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Be offensive to yourself. Be offensive to yourself. Look at what he says. Don't love money. And it's interesting that he goes from uh, talking about sexual immorality and adultery to money. 
But that same excessiveness is the same word in the Greek. Meaning, whether you're sexually immoral or you're just greedy for money, it's the same problem. The same problem of indulging the flesh. Don't get to a place where you indulge the flesh in any way. You've got to learn, as Paul says in in Galatians chapter 5, to crucify the flesh and its desires daily. We've got to be offensive towards our flesh, meaning we've got to have an idea where our weaknesses are and be offensive to go after them and not just wait for them to kind of rear their ugly heads because by then, that thing has picked up a lot of steam and it's rolling downhill. And so we've got to be proactive in this. Romans chapter eight says, brothers and sisters, you do not have an obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. If you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. We cannot be lazy and indifferent towards our flesh. Even though we are covered under the umbrella of God's grace because of the death of Jesus Christ, we still have to pay attention to the desires of our flesh and crucify them daily, daily. We use fasting and prayer. We use time in the word. We use time with other believers and we have accountability. Men, I, I beg you to have internet accountability on your computer, whether you use uh, covenant eyes or whatever. I mean, even if you think that pornography is not your sin, oh my goodness, why don't you open the door and invite the devil in? Because in our society, it is literally everywhere. And I love the fact that someone is looking over my shoulder to make sure I don't click where I shouldn't click. Because that temptation is always there. And there are cheap ways that you can do that. And if you don't have one, you come see me and I will help you get one. In fact, Covenant Eyes offers 50% discounts on memberships to people in Assemblies of God churches because they want to protect the body of Christ. Statistically, men in the church and outside the church, about the same percent, struggle with looking at internet pornography. That should not be in our lives, and it will not go away if you don't proactively treat it. And it's not just a men problem, ladies. In our society, it's become a a female problem too. And don't think it's not happening in your lives of your children, even as young as six and seven years old. If they've got an electronic device, they've got the window. And so we've gotta be proactive with this. We can't shame it either. I mean, for goodness sake, please, if you don't know how to to talk about that, uh, there is, we should not allow shame into this because it's a, uh, it's one, some, some, such a big part of our culture, and it's a, a vice in the flesh. And it's no different than any other sin as far as participation goes. So please, let, let's find ways to deal with it uh, proactively. And Philippians chapter 4 says, fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. You know, if gossip and slander are your sin of choice, if that's your fleshly desire, you can't sit and think about the, all the flaws in people. You gotta think about what's true and right and good and lovely and honorable. We've gotta be proactive with our flesh just as much as everything else. Number six, be offensive toward your spiritual leaders. I'll just be careful how I joke here. <laughs> 
you've got to understand something about authority in our culture today. Authority in our culture today is, is we don't treat anyone in authority with respect. I mean, from the top down. And we wonder why our children don't treat their, their parents with respect and they don't treat their teachers with respect. Um, just look at how we treat those in political office. Just look at how you talk about your boss when you're home at work. Just look at the conversations you have about pastors and deacons in your home. Okay, is it any wonder we have taught our children not to respect and not to honor? The thing about spiritual leaders is, it says right here, God will judge them. So everyone who's a leader in the church, whether it's a, a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a teacher, whoever is, is some level of leader that God, in fact, through scripture says he has set up in the church to watch over us and to protect us and help us, God will judge them. Now, nowhere in the scripture does it say just let them live however they wanna live and don't, uh, don't try to, to keep an example over them. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter five, it teaches us right here that you should entertain accusations against leaders if it's brought by two or three witnesses. Not just one guy's opinion, not just a few people's opinions, but if there's a witness who's got impropriety against a leader, then you deal with it and you deal with it in a public way so that the body sees it, so that they feel protected by it, so they understand it, that no one's above reproach, that no one's above you know, this idea of being corrected. But sometimes we look at, at leadership and we look at people that are in authority and we think that you know, it's because of all the corruption, it's because of all the moral failures and that's why we look at people. No, we look at people with suspicion because of sinful nature and the flesh. And the scripture says don't do that. It says to be offensive, be proactive, to put yourself in a place where spiritual leaders watch over you. In fact, he goes into that discourse about making sure that we, we do that because they protect us, they help us. Don't follow new strange ideas and teachings. You know, it's great that you watch televangelists and it's great that you study books from other authors, but the Bible puts us as believers in a local body of believers under the spiritual authority of leaders who watch over our daily lives and protect us and teach us things to kind of keep us grounded. Every once in a while, people on TV or people who write books can write stuff that, that's kind of out there, that's not really grounded on the truth of the word, that's more opinion than it is scripture and why we put ourselves under the authority of people who watch over us regularly is is because they watch our lives over time you know if your character over time is kind of just a steady and all of a sudden you have this big jump or spike I'm guessing you just had a bad day now if I walk into your life in that one moment and I see that you have this spike I might judge you based on that moment but as someone who's watched your life closely, see, and that's why we invite spiritual leadership in our lives, so they can watch our lives and they can judge us on that. Now, if you're one whose life is more like this, and you go to like someone outside your local body of believers, and you present something to them very steady, but what you're doing really is manipulative because you just wanna do something that you maybe know is wrong, the Spirit of God's telling you wrong, but you want someone to give you approval to do it. And that's, and if you would go to like a spiritual leader and they know your life is like this, they'd be like, what are you doing? But we know that. 
And so we run. Please do not run from spiritual authority because it's been misused or mistreated. I promise you, anyone who misuses spiritual authority will answer to God for it. But look at the end of this. It would certainly not be for your benefit. See, if God truly has given us gifts called apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists, and we mistreat them or we don't welcome them into our lives as gifts of God, we'll answer for that too. Because it's his gift to us and we welcome it. Because God is ultimately the one that sets up all authority. Romans chapter 13 promises us that. And so we can submit ourselves to authority because all authority comes from God. Even authority that we don't agree with is set up by the hand of God. And so, so much we could say about that, but at the end of the day, we've gotta be offensive towards spiritual leaders. And then the last one, we've gotta be offensive toward the Spirit of God. Toward the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be attracted to these strange new ideas. Our strength comes from the grace of God. So we've gotta be proactive to get the grace of God. How do we do that? We humble ourselves. We, hum, we come in a posture of humility before the Lord regularly. That's how you receive grace. We already talked about this at the beginning. If you come with pride that I'm not wrong and I'm not doing anything wrong, uh, you're not gonna receive grace. You've gotta be proactive. You've gotta come before the throne of our gracious God to receive the grace and mercy of God. You've gotta be proactive to be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit regularly you know some of us are like well you know i've actually heard people voice this if god wants me to have the baptism in the holy spirit he'll just give it to me uh well god wants all men to be saved but he doesn't just give it to everyone he offers it to everyone but only those who call on him receive salvation the only way you are going to be continuously filled with the holy spirit is if you pursue a relationship with the holy spirit meaning you pray you go after him you read the word you ask for the holy spirit to fill you you yield control of your life when the holy spirit prompts you he's not going to take over your body i mean i love grace coming today and saying you know the holy spirit spoke to me last week and said do this but aren't you glad that the holy spirit didn't treat grace like we would treat grace fine you don't want to do things my way all week long he kept saying hey you need to share this. You need to share this. And I love the fact that Stan then says, wow, that really fits with this next song. I mean, even though he wanted her to share it, then he's gracious towards her and he keeps giving her that opportunity to do it again. She takes it and does it again. That's yielding to the Holy Spirit. And the thing is, is until we learn to say, you know what, that's grace that comes into our lives because we, we weren't afraid to say, you know what, I rejected what the Holy Spirit was telling me to do. Uh, and I mean, how many of us could have come and done that? I mean, the Holy Spirit prompted me this week to do something and I didn't do it. Well, then come back to that point and do it or admit it so that you receive the grace of God and the Holy Spirit can fill our lives in more and more ways because we're to continuously offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Now, this is not a song. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the, okay, that's not what he's talking about, okay? The praise, literally, to praise is to declare who God is. And what he's saying is, continue to offer to God a sacrifice of praise, which is your allegiance to him. 
Conform your life to him. Now, should we praise God in a service? Yep. Should we worship God? Yep. But worship is not a slow song. It's giving my body to God as an act of worship. It's conforming my life to him. So you can sing, we bring the sacrifice of praise and even do the motions and offer him up to him, a sacrifice of praise. But if you're not conforming your life to him, you're missing the whole point. And that's what he's talking about. If that's your favorite song, I apologize if I offended you. (laughs) I didn't want to be offensive. Um, But this is the thing. We've got to be proactive in this. It's not going to happen by accident. I mean, we have to ask God to do things in our life. We have to admit to God that we have hardened our hearts against him, that we rejected him. When you walk through a store and you feel prompted to talk to someone and you walk out and you feel like, man, I missed that opportunity, please, 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 please admit that to the Lord. Lord, you prompted me and I didn't speak. Help me next time to have the courage to do it and trust you. Admit it to him. That's what this is all about. Don't just wallow in it for six months and be like, man, I'm such a terrible person. I keep missing. Just admit it, receive grace, and walk through it. So here's the thing. We have to be offensive. We have to be proactive. Ephesians 5.17, which comes right before this one about being filled with the Holy Spirit, says do not act thoughtlessly. In other words, don't just hope that this is gonna happen for you. You have got to understand what the Lord wants you to do. There's a work that God wants us to do and it's not gonna happen by accident. And so I've given us seven relationships right here. Seven relationships that we need to focus on in this idea of being proactive. And here's how I want us to end. I want us, as I close in prayer today, to say, Holy Spirit, what's the one on that list that you'd put at the top of that list for me? Now, I guarantee you, every one of us in this room could get something out of every one of those lists. I mean, all of us could grow in every one. But if we had to order them, they'd look different for all of us. So what's the one that the Holy Spirit wants to pinpoint right now for you? Ask him that. What's that one area that you really want me to focus on? And then admit any shortcoming that you need to admit. And then ask him what you need to do in response to that. And then, this week ahead, I want you to notice there's seven relationships. It wouldn't be a bad idea to get in the habit every morning of picking one of those seven and praying for it. God, today, help me to treat strangers with hospitality. Because here's the thing. You and I are not going to change our behavior until we focus on it. And we're not going to get grace from God to change our behavior until we ask him for it. Hearing this sermon today and saying amen is not all we need to do. We need now to take these seven and every day say, God, here's the one. And just one a day. Every day. And don't And then watch for testimonies to come in your life. Watch for change to start coming in our behavior toward these seven people. So there you go. One today, and then one every day for this week ahead. And then let's watch God continue to work in our lives. Until Jesus comes, probably, we could do these seven things. So I want to invite you to stand with me. That's how we're going to close today. I'm basically going to pray that prayer. And I want to give you 
the time you need to respond however you want. If you wanna come to the front and you wanna kneel here in prayer, if you wanna just sit where you are, but I wanna encourage you, don't leave until you at least take a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to, to order that list for you and to put his finger on one thing that needs to change in your life today. And so Father, I thank you that you, you love us today. I know that you love us because today your word corrected us. It, it brought some, some change to the way that we think and the way that we live. God, I know that every one of us in this room could look at this list and we could probably write down a lot of things that need to change. But Holy Spirit, we know that you are faithful, that you are just, that you're fair, and that you're good. And you're not gonna overwhelm us today, but you are gonna give us something today. And so I pray that you would speak to our hearts before we leave. Order this list for us that you would bring to the top that one area that we need to focus on. That one thing that we need to set right today. And then help us to be proactive, to be offensive in that relationship throughout this day. For the remainder of today, help us to, f to fix our thoughts and our attention on that relationship. And then through this week ahead, as we ask for your help and your guidance and your direction, Holy Spirit, take the salvation that you've already given us and put in us and work it out in our relationships so that others can see our good deeds and bring glory to our Father in heaven. And so thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the love, the patience, and the mercy that you display every morning to us. Give us the grace we need today to change how we treat people. So Father, I pray your blessing upon this congregation as we leave. I ask that you would bless them and keep them. I ask that you would cause your face to shine on them, that you would be gracious to them in every way, and that you'd give them peace. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Man, when you want to